Uh, it is good to be here. It is really good to be here um, after not being here last week, um, being out sick. Thank you for your patience and seeing the same passage in the worship folder, an odd passage at that two weeks in a row. Uh, it was a good chance to show what kind of a rock star Charles is that he can just uh, turn and deliver a sermon at a moment's notice. So um, a lot of thanks um, and credit to him, but I'm happy to be here after you know having studied this for a uh, couple weeks now. We're looking, this, we're making a little bit of a transition. Uh, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 1 now, uh, which the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are one book. Uh, they tell a whole narrative, uh, but this marks a turning point um, in uh, this portion of the history of Israel and that where we have been watching uh, the rise of Saul um, and David's anointing as king and him being on the run from Saul. But what has just happened is that Saul um, and his son Jonathan have just died. Um, and so we are witnessing one of the first acts um, the, of David, as with Saul out of the way, undertaking this responsibility of kingship of his own, which will begin his rise um, to power um, and his rise of service for um, the nation of Israel. And what we have here is a beautiful uh, poem of lament. Um, so I'm without saying anything else yet. Uh, let me read it for us. I'll read 2 Samuel 1, 17 through 27, and then I'll pray for us and we'll jump in. This is God's word. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, and lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Your Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And would you humble us all before this, your very good and very loving word, and would you use it for your good purposes? Uh, We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, This is a pretty strange passage. I remember when I first looked at it, it was, uh, um, it really stood out and it struck me as odd. Um, Most notably because uh, it is, it comes as a very unexpected um, kind of response of what we would have expected David to do. Um, in this situation. As a guy who had all kinds of reasons um, to despise Saul, um, he actually gives this uh, very beautiful lament um, of praising him 
uh, in a very unexpected way. Um, something, just an example of something similar to this um, that struck me. I, a few weeks ago, I was visiting a friend up in North Georgia and was driving alone through Atlanta. And long story short, there was an active shooter on the interstate, and I was stuck for like an hour, you know, as one does in downtown Atlanta. Um, everybody's fine. Um, but I'm just sitting there, bored out of my mind, um, in the car, and, I, you know, things are running through my head. And um, one of the things that was running through my head was a song uh, by a songwriter named Andy Gullihorn, who... Uh, when our staff went to see the Behold the Lamb concert with Andrew Peterson last winter, and Andy sang a song, and just this line was in my head, so I, I couldn't figure out what the lyric was, so I looked it up, and I'm listening to the song. Uh, but it's this song called Weird People, and it just it goes through a list of just people who do weird things, which range anywhere from you know going to a football game shirtless to going gluten-free. Um, and then... But in the end, it's kind of angling in, a, in an artistic way towards a story, or he tells a story of a guy whose daughter had actually been murdered, and how this guy had forgiven the murderer and had visited him regularly um, in prison after that. And it was one of those things that just, it might be that kind of thing that, you know, we hear stories like that, and, uh, but it's still unexpected. And this is like just true confessions. Here's the kinds of things that are running through my head after that. Uh, one is convicting, um, because I look at my own heart and see um, if that's what it means to uh, be a follower of Christ, uh, uh, give, offering forgiveness and turning the other cheek in a radical way, something must not have taken inside of me, uh, because I just oftentimes don't see that kind of impulse um, in my own life. Um, but then it also brought up questions, especially now, like in our time when we, we're, as a society, we're wrestling with uh, the presence of justice and the importance of justice. Uh, you know, no justice and no peace, and me too, and these kinds of things that have really helped us grapple with this idea that justice um, and not just turning away um, are really important things. And then that just, you know, brought up thoughts of like, is this even a healthy response? Like, should the guy have been like more angry or like, is this emotionally healthy or whatever that? Anyways, after two hours on the interstate, you know, things like this running through my brain, um, it just stuck with me because I think of the unexpected nature of that response and just the story, it, it, it was started poking around in my own heart um, and gave me lots of questions. And it made me wrestle through things that I might not have wrestled through um, otherwise, regardless of what we think they are. And I give that, I think there's a parallel in what David is doing here in this situation for Israel and for us. Um, in that it is going so against the grain um, with what we would have expected. Um, it is giving a very unexpected response to the situation that was in. And it's meant to catch us off, off guard. It's kind of one of, those things, one of those things that's meant to wake us up um, in the middle of, you know, the temp to notice the temperature of the water that we're in um, that we might not see otherwise because we've been, uh, we've been there in the pot. Um, and so it's, in, it's very artistically um, uh, put here, um, and it is a very powerful um, kind of expression here. Um, so, I mean, there's, it's a challenge to bridge a context from that day into this day and say, what does this mean for us, even in a specific, uh, in such a specific situation as this? But what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at it in uh, three different views rather than points. I think is look, is asking us to, to evaluate life 
uh, from three different perspectives. Uh, and I hope these will be naturally intuitive to you. If you give me two weeks to think about a sermon, it is guaranteed to be needlessly abstract um, and hard to understand. So uh, forgive me uh, for that. Uh, but um, I hope this will make sense. It was definitely uh, beneficial to me. Uh, first, we're going to just look at this typical human view of the world. Uh, we're going to ask what we would have expected in this situation. Uh, and then we're going to look at David's view of the world and how David's view juxtaposes that. Uh, and then we'll end with looking at God's view um, and that what God is doing and what he is up to uh, with his people through all of this. So first, let's look at the typical human view of the world and how we see this. In first, is, in first place, it's just a natural question that comes up. It's not in what we see in the text, but in what we don't see in the text, um, is that what we don't see um, is what we would have expected to see there. Um, and if we remember where David is and what he's been up to, uh, since he has been anointed as king of Israel, uh, his life has gotten nothing but more and more and more miserable at the hands of Saul. Uh, he has been pursued. He's been tried to be, Saul has tried to kill him multiple times. He has been pursued through the desert, um, hanging out with rough people. He's had to pretend like he's crazy. He has even just had to seek refuge with the Philistines, like their arch, arch rivals. I mean, it has been a steady spiral of his life going downhill. And that is directly attributed to Saul and Saul's hatred of him. And I mean, maybe it's just me, but you, I would not have expected any other response out of David first than some kind of thanksgiving or a huge exhale of something that, that just expresses a relief that in some ways his suffering um, has come to an end. And I think if we look at this narrative further, um, I think that that expectation is somehow justified because there are other clues that the, the passage is giving us in context that are setting us up for other aspects that we would have expected from David. So keeping that context in mind, what we didn't read, which was the, the scene just before this poem, um, was an Amalekite came up to David and gave him the news that Saul was dead. And he offers him Saul's crown that he took and the armband of Saul and handed it to David. And you put somebody who's been so miserable in such a distressed situation um, of such longing, and then these things are just handed like to him. Um, it is kind of like in Lord of the Rings where the ring is handed to Galadriel and is offered. It's like, will you take this? Like, this is the thing that you most want. Um, will you take advantage of this opportunity and use it to your advantage? To take what is yours and to run with it because your point of suffering has ended. And it's alluding to this aspect of David, um, just this human impulse, not only for Thanksgiving, but just that craving that we all have of, of wanting what is ours, especially in a circumstance of suffering. Um, that if we could just you know, get the thing that we most desire and run. Like, that is the solution um, that'll make life good. We can almost feel that uh, for David as these things are being handed, um, um, being handed to him. And throw one more thing into the, into the mix. Um, David's character is being juxtaposed here with Saul. Uh, these are, it's like a type and an anti-type of a leader. And if there is one thing that has characterized Saul's reign above anything else, it has been that of fear. 
Uh, from the very beginning, we have seen as Saul, when Saul was anointed to be king, he was afraid of the people. He was afraid to stand up and to take his place. Uh, when he was leading the armies of Israel, he was afraid. He was afraid of what the armies of Israel would think um, whenever Samuel didn't show up to offer a sacrifice. And so out of fear for what people thought, he stood up and he, he gave them what he thought they want, wanted. And at this previous scene just to this, um, that he went to such great length. He was so afraid of the battle that he was about to fight. He went to uh, the Wicked Witch of Endor um, in order to even go so far outside of God's uh, direction and purposes as to alleviate his fear. And what I'm trying to paint for you, I know this is a lot to, he- to heap together, is I'm trying to paint, these are such natural human responses, especially when we are hit with adversity is this endpoint? it is a paradigm of exploitation and of taking on one side and of fear and of the knowledge that we can be taken from on the other side. And this is exactly the story we see from the very beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve who were created good and it says that they were naked and they were not ashamed. There was no thought of taking anything from anybody else that was not theirs and there was no thought that anybody would ever take something of me uh, that was not theirs. And then that is reversed. That is the first thing that falls as soon as Adam and Eve sinned. There is this knowledge that I can take, I can exploit, I can take what benefits me and I can run with it, but also the fear of knowing that other people can take from me. And this is so natural for us, I think, in life. Sometimes we have a hard time seeing it. And so what happens, This what I'm characterizing this natural human view is, is it makes us big players in the world. Like we are the agent. We are the main one um, that life is about. And, it, and yet at the same time, it shrinks the world. And that the world is only good in how it affects us. All we think about are the dangers and the possibilities um, that affect us. We, are, we become big players in a very small world in this, in this sense. And I think we can see that in all kinds of ways. Um, I think we are immediately invited to think about leadership. This is one of the things that was I ran my brain around a lot this week when I was thinking about this. Just because David is showing that like he has just spent so much time um, being respectful of this leader who was not doing his job the way that he thought. And he was bringing much, much harm. And that's, of course, how we expect and we feel in ourselves of what leaders are there for. They are only good as long as they do what we want. They are only good as long as, you know, the things that we agree with are actually being uphold, upheld. And yet, God has given us leaders in all kinds of ways. And every single one of them are fallible. And there is not one single one um, that, that is going to satisfy us entirely. And we end up coming down to these things This like, this person is not my leader. They are, I, I, they will, unless they do what I want, I will not follow. And then, of course, the, practically the opposite is true. If that's true, then your leader, someone else, is not going to follow. And there's no point in having the system in the first place uh, when that's there. Um, much less the fact that a lot of them are, God's, are, are gifts um, that God has given us. Uh, that's something that really presses on us where we, that evaluates what our world is about. Is it about us or is it about something bigger? Uh, we can just see this in relationships. Um, when relationships are only as good as there is no offense, and as soon as there is an offense and some kind of suffering um, is brought into the relationship, 
um, it's not valuable anymore. That it's only good in the way that it affects us and it affects us pos- positively. And that we see there is no reason to have them um, if, they are not, if they are not good. I think we, we keep expanding this principle out of just, you know, exploitation on one side and fear on the other. And we just see like our dreams in life where life is reduced to work and then vacation and saving and then retirement. And that's it. It is only about us. It's a reduction of what it means to be a person. And yet it is all around like we all have this. It is so prevalent. Sometimes it is hard to see. And one of the things that Saul's life has illustrated is just what seems like something that is so benign and so natural and not immediately destructive is that we see this whole people and nation, it just slowly starts to crumble. It starts to become reactive. It starts to buckle under the weight of suffering and people suffer. Um, The whole nation suffers. And I I think one of the reasons this is here is, is just bringing this to our attention. And that what is surprising about David's response, it is putting us in front of our eyes to, to ask ourselves um, how, you know, to take that temperature of the water around us. And I think this will be, I'll put it in the community group questions, but I think this will be a great community group exercise uh, to just work, to practice naming these things um, together. Um, just some of these natural ways that life works. But what's the other side of this? You know, if that's one view, you know, David, uh, his life, it illustrates something that in some ways is hidden, but it's also promoting something else at the same time. Um, And what David is doing, we got to put all this in context um, um, of how, you know, the Old Testament and this narrative works, that the reason why Israel had a king, there were several reasons, um, but it was supposed to be a king who was unlike the other kings, who was not dedicated towards exploitation or fear of those around us but a king that was actually to lead and provide an example of what it means to follow God's law and to defer to him as the true king of Israel. And so what David is doing and what the narrative is doing is that this is putting something up as David's first action that is a different view of the world than what would have been expected and is something that is there to be noticed and is something that is there to be followed. Um, for um, the rest of the rest of Israel, and what is this? Um, it's just quite simple. That rather than a paradigm of exploitation and fear, David's view is a paradigm of suffering that is real, but also of a life that is given, that it is given by God. That what we have and what is good, it is not the result of David's primary agency, but it is a result of God's agency, of what he has given. The circumstances he has brought into his life, the road that he has led us on, the protection that is going to be around um, the people, and the direction he is going to focus his leadership, it doesn't come from David. David is somebody there that is to point to the true king over Israel who is God. And where do we see this? Uh, we see this in, um, in, in um, all kinds of ways. Let me just point out a few more. Um, um, just for one thing, I, w- I want us to notice, and this is the first thing that really stood out um, to me, is this idea of why David was mourning in the first place, um, and why he was sad 
that Saul and Jonathan um, um, die. And I'll just say, I, Jonathan is a big character in here, and that would be a great sermon all on its own. I'm focusing on Saul just because of the juxtaposition here. But that, maybe that's another community group conversation. You can talk about Jonathan um, and the benefits of friendship and after that. But if in 1 Samuel 1, 1 11, and 12, um, it shows an, a, mourning, a genuine mourning for Saul. So this is not just a political move that David is doing to, to get his people together to fight back against the Philistines. But the reason he is doing it comes out in this account with the Amalekite who came, who came and bringing the crown and the armband. He says that he murdered, he actually killed Saul, but out of mercy. That Saul was lying and he was about to die. And the Amalekite said Saul called him over and that he said, can you just finish me off to put me out of his misery, expecting that David would would say, good job, thank you for your mercy and whatever. Um, But David actually has this guy killed um, because he says, how would you think that you could lay your hand upon the Lord's anointed? And when we read this, we remember this whole count of David, that David had two other opportunities he could have murdered Saul at the same time. But why does he not do it? Because Saul was in that office at that time because God had put him there. And Saul had anointed David and said, one day you will be in this office, but it will be in the time that I put you there. And when we read it in context, that David is emphasizing, this is emphasizing an aspect of his character, that rather than him being the big player in a little world, that he is actually a much, he takes a much smaller position. That what he has have been the things that have been given by God. The position that he is in is because God had put him there. He's not the primary agent. He is a player that God has put in a place and asked him to do a thing. And this, you know, another Lord of the Rings illustration, I had to, but this just reminds me of The Hobbit in a sense. So The Hobbit is one of my favorite books, and which is why the movies are terrible. Um, They completely miss the point, and I don't mean any disrespect if you like the movies. But um, the whole idea of The Hobbit is that this is this little character who has no adequate sense of the bigness of what is going on around us. But he is led on this journey almost against his will and ends up having such a significant point, point to play Uh, being the smallest character. I mean, that's the whole point of this book, um, is just emphasizing these little things. But the radical thing about David is that he is the king, and he's not the little thing. But he is positioning himself as the humble and the small character, and he is pointing to God as the main driver of the story. And what this is doing is he is calling on the rest of Israel to follow him in this sense that life is something that is given. It is not something to be taken. Um, that there is a true king and it is no human being, uh, but it is actually God himself. And the, what's remarkable is that when he's able to see this, he's able to see a huge complexity in Saul's life. He's able to see him as a human being uh, more than just how he had affected David. And that allows him to grieve. He grieves genuinely because this is a complex person created by God and a unique human being. Um, it allows him to, um, it says he stopped all of his responsibility. I mean, his first act as king was to do nothing so he could mourn for his friend. It's almost like time doesn't affect him in the same hurried way um, that, that we might have expected. He stops and he mourns for his friend. He is effectively, he's able to effectively lead his nation uh, while grappling through these uh, complexities. And he is able to take up his kingship without baggage. 
uh, of what he would regret um, if he had done something rash in that situation. This is, I think this is meant to be tantalizing and ask us questions of what this is like. What is it like to live a life rather than of exploitation and fear, but of total freedom? Of knowing that we're, what we have and what we have been given is appointed. And this is hard. Because there is, there is nothing that pushes on our patience as being in a season of hardship that just will not end of feeling the kind of helplessness like we don't have the control over our situation that we wish we could. But it is a radical acknowledgement of who is the true king, um, and his whole character and ethic is built around this. But this in itself is incomplete, and this is really the main point, which is quick, that, that I want to drive at here. Like we have a negative view and we have a positive view, um, but that's not at the heart what all of this is about. I think that when we look at God's view here, um, then we were reminded who the king is and who is supposed to, how he's supposed to function, we get something far more hopeful. Because if we just have two options to pick, we're left with a mathematical formula, um, which none of us can really keep. I mean, there are reasons why we choose self-protection and exploitation as opposed to humility um, and deferring to God and his good gifts. And it is because life is hard and because our strength is weak. It is often because of pain. It is often because of all kinds of complexities that we find ourselves grappling with that are way over our head. But this is why it's important to remember, who is David for the king of Israel? He is much more than an example. But David is the king. David has authority, and he is put in that position in order to lead his people somewhere in particular. And in a sense that who we are to identify with in this passage is not David himself, even though that might be our tendency, but in the people of Israel who now get to see that there is a new king on the throne who is able to lead them in a different way than all of their kings have before. And this is why David is a Christ figure. And this is why the New Testament in particular, often when talking about Jesus, points back to uh, this idea of kingship that is found in David. Because David was a type of a new savior that was coming as that one who would come not just as an example, although Jesus does give us a radical example that challenges the way that we do go through life. And that is very important. But who he is much beyond that is the savior of his people. He comes with absolute authority to forgive sins um, as he is raised to new life, to direct life in history. Um, as the spirit is in us, a radical closeness that he has with us to walk with us through every complex situation that we're in. He is a, a king who has been given to us with authority, who is very close and who walks ahead of us and walks with us through absolutely every situation that we're in. And this is crucially important because, I mean, every single one of us has a different story in this room of why life is just hard. We have family relationships, we have friendship relationships, we have social relationships that are so complicated uh, that we don't know what's up and what's down and we don't know what to do in them. Uh, We have situations where there's just such pain and longing and we feel impatient um, and we just can't go on and take another day. They just will not end. And the hope is not just that we have been shown something better, however good that something better is is that we have the King, the Father, Abba Father, our big brother Jesus, who is with us and who is wrapping his arms around us and who is walking with us every single step of the way. 
So however discouraged you are, however, whatever pain is in there, what this is, especially looking at it from our vantage point, what this is doing is this is pointing us back to our true king. That we, can, that we can abandon ourselves, not in ourselves, but in the one who gave himself for us and the one who has promises that he is with us every day. And so even if we don't know when it is going to end, and even if we don't know how to get through the complexity, what we have as we sit is hope, and we have a friend who holds us, and we can hold him, and that we can look to and we can cry with, um, and we can have our souls comforted for the whole journey. Let's pray um, that he would, he would dig out, he would dig in our hearts, but ultimately that he would show us Jesus through that. Dear Father, we ask that you would help us. Above everything else, you would help us to see your grace this morning. And that you would lead us to that uh, wonderful place, uh, the garden that is fruitful, um, that is characterized by your protection and your love and your abundant generosity towards us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.